0: If you're listening to this and working on yeah. a generative AI gaming startup, please let mm-hmm. me know. I'd imagine with the amount of press we've gotten, we're going to see some really cool companies doing some yeah. really interesting stuff in that space.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navik. Uh, this is the one podcast to stay up to date with the latest game business news. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navik, and Seb Park, co-founder of Infinite Canvas and venture partner at BitCraft. Hey, everyone.
0: Hello. <laughs> there we go. I, you know, I, I, had a, I had a good joke for this, but then I saw Aaron say hello, and that's funny enough <laughs> as it is. So I think we're good to go, Maria.
1: For context, I asked... For Aaron and Seb to say an enthusiastic hi after the intros, and well,
2: did it thanks, deliver? Okay. Yeah, oh, definitely. Hundred percent delivered. <laughs> All right. Tell me if you need a little more enthusiasm next time. I'll I'll try.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll let you know. Um, so we have a number of updates that are going to cover esports market updates, layoffs. Before jumping into the discussion topics, and today we're going to dig into. EA's earnings, Take-Two's earnings, and also returning to increasing deployment of venture capital into gaming. Cool. Um, does anyone have jokes to tell before we jump in?
0: Uh, again, I think Aaron's hello is funny enough as it is. I think we're ready to go.
1: <laughs> you promised a joke, but Okay. We can. I, I
0: know, but it's, it's one of those things where you just got, you know, in life, I find that quitting while you're ahead is just as valuable <laughs> as sticking with it at times. And when you you just can't follow Aaron up. And when you can't follow <laughs> someone up, you just have to tip your hat and then move on to the next thing.
1: Wow, it seems like we're doing an update on FTX. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, Seb, so you have the first update. So what's next for esports?
0: Yeah, so esports is in a really interesting spot right now overall. And for a couple of reasons. One, from a macro standpoint, Right now, we just completed the first quote-unquote post-COVID eSports ecosystem year. We had a couple years there where people weren't doing live events in 2020 and 2021. Coming into 2022, we had a full-scale Worlds for League of Legends. We had full majors for both Dota and Counter-Strike. We're having a really interesting push into eSports going into 2023. What's interesting is that because of the pause... In those two years esports has been rather frozen for the last like 30 months or so there haven't been as many new games and instead it's been really legacy productions pushing their edge for the last 24 36 months and so the question is especially as we see changes to add you know sk ad network which is like a recurring theme whenever i'm on the podcast and then more importantly The usefulness of eSports as a brand play or user acquisition pay or a retention play, depending on how you view it, what does that future look like? What are the next games in the funnel? Does eSports benefit from this or does it do poorly? From a legacy team and ecosystem company side, we've already seen the cracks or the chinks in the armor, as they say. Like There are clearly issues with some of the legacy players in terms of how they've develop their value prop and how they're moving into the future. So we'll see what changes in terms of if there are new games, new ecosystems, and more importantly, just new players in general in the entire space.
1: Okay, Is there any game that we should be looking out for?
0: Yeah. I mean, so I think for the most part, the biggest one is Valorant is set to launch their new league system from Riot next year. It seems to be, at least from all intents and purposes, the largest push we've seen on the esports side. Since Overwatch League, which is crazy to think about, but that's been about five years. Like it's been five years since Overwatch League launched, six years since they started putting out feelers. And so, half a decade later, we'll see what happens with Overwatch. uh, Oh, sorry, with Valorant. And more importantly, it seems to indicate from what we're looking in the space, a shift away from a potentially League of Legends focused cast to a much more Valorant focus. Riot Games has historically been a meme, right? In that they had one game for a decade. Now they have multiple games, and in particular, TFT as well as Valorant seem to be taking up more air uh, in the entire ecosystem. So we'll see what happens there and see if those get the type of love that we expect them to see. The second wave that I always warn people about, which I think is interesting, is there's going to be, if I have to guess, a proliferation of ideas that have failed in the past. I'd imagine, and I'm already starting to see glimpses of this, we'll start seeing people trying to attempt Ven again, V-E-N-N. We'll see people trying to attempt your like play versus your Super League. you know, Ideas that have historically failed, but people, there's been enough time mm-hmm. that it might be the case that people think it's worth giving another try. And so okay. I keep an eye out for both of those things and form opinions as to whether or not you care about esports or you don't, and then go from there.
1: Okay, really interesting. Thanks, Seb. Uh, next up uh, is my update about Japan's PC gaming market. So Kanten Games is a Tokyo-based game industry consultancy that's focused on the Japanese market, and it's led by Dr. Serkan Toto. They recently released a market update about Japan's PC games market. So the number one gaming platform in the country is mobile. It's three times larger than consoles in the past decade. And often the PC gaming market is just considered negligible and niche. Um, but it roughly doubled in 2021 versus the 2018 numbers in both revenue and player count. So according to the Kantan Games report, the growth is fueled by a combination of factors and is predicted to continue growing in the following years. So for PC game developers, this means that if you're not already translating your game into Japanese, um, doing so could open up a growing market, even more so if your game is published on Steam or Epic Games. So a handful of the highest impacting factors that are fueling the PC gaming growth are the overall growth of the Japanese gaming user base due to the corona effects that are still ongoing. Uh, There's a continued lack of availability of PlayStation 5, so gamers are turning to PC to play higher fidelity games. And there's also growing acceptance of foreign and indie games, which are more accessible and cheaper on Steam or the Epic Games Store. And then, very quickly, moving on to the next update. This one's about China's declining mobile gaming market. Um, so, this deep dive was recently published by Navic Pro, and I'll very quickly share the high level insights. And if you find the reporting relevant, you can consider becoming a Navic Pro subscriber. There's a promo code in the show notes. So, the data was provided by Data AI, and it shows relatively stable revenue across 2021. And then there's a plunge in revenue that begins in the second quarter of 2022. And it intensifies in the third quarter. So while the whole market is experiencing a shrink in revenue um, in the second and third quarter, China appears to be more impacted by it. And this is due to tightening gaming restrictions, China's current economic situation, and just the standard mobile gaming headwinds that we've been seeing. So overall, I think this is a lesson to show how unfriendly and risky operating in China's gaming market could be. And we'll keep an eye on what happens in the next quarters. Aaron.
2: Yeah, well, yeah. I guess first of all, just on the China stuff, that was crazy. I don't know if you saw the numbers. Like, obviously, mobile around the world has fallen. You know, like a handful of percentages, but like the mobile China revenue was down like twenty something percent in Q three, and so that that was that was just like another tier of like, oh my god, what is happening? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, not the not the friendliest. Place in the world for controlling your own destiny, but uh, but yeah, the update that that I just wanted to share was that on Monday it was announced that Unity and uh, Iron Source that merger closed, so they are officially one business now. And as a reminder, when when that deal was announced four months ago, it was an all stock transaction that valued Iron Source at four point four billion dollars at that share price. But since then. Uh, Unity's stock price has fallen roughly in half. So therefore, the deal value roughly did as well. And the the market cap of the combined company is now about $9 billion, I believe. And if that deal didn't close, Unity's um, standalone market cap would be around six and a half, seven billion, $7 which alone is still way, way, way down from its highs of over $50 billion in late 2021. So in my mind, you know, on one hand it's remarkable that a company as, you know, mission critical to the world of digital creation and games is valued so small, but obviously it it is this way for a reason. Growth has been unprofitable, a lot of money was inefficiently used in M&A, and obviously there have been some execution flaws too such as Unity's advertising algorithm getting messed up and them having to to rebuild that from, from scratch over this past year. And I don't remember if I was on the podcast when the deal was announced, but my, my take was essentially that even though I totally understand and respect why Unity wants to improve its app-based monetization capabilities, and they should, uh, this deal on both sides is coming from a position of weakness, not strength. And I still think that is still the case um, now that they're together. So um, obviously, it'll, it'll take some time to integrate the operations and leadership of these two companies. But it's pretty obvious to me also that, you know, like many companies these days, they'll probably need to take some steps to, to reorient, to rein in expenses, to, you know, better discuss profitability and just being a higher quality, um, more controlled company. And if management can clean up operations while still emphasizing R and D, but without being as crazy with M and A deals, probably uh, you know there could eventually be some opportunity here. And this doesn't have to be as small of a business as it is right now. I think it's just a question of whether existing leadership are the right people to pull it off. But
1: hmm.
2: we'll see. We'll see how it goes over the next few quarters.
1: Okay. Um. We're also going to update Embrace Group closing former Square Enix Montreal. So it was rebranded to Anoma, I think that's how you pronounce it, after the studio was acquired in May. Um, they announced that they're closing the Anoma studio and publishing QA team to focus their ambitions on AAA games with Crystal Dynamics and Eidos Montreal, which was also acquired as part of the Square Enix deal. It came at an awkward timing, the closure announcement, because it was not even one month after the rebrand had been announced and a new game had been announced. It will roughly impact around 200 people. Some of them may transition to Eidos Montreal, but not all. And yeah, it's quite, you know, it's, it's seen so many layoffs happening across the industry. You know, Meta announced today, we're recording on Wednesday, that they're letting go, I think, around 13% of their workforce. And Meta is only one example is happening across the board. So yeah, our hearts go out to everyone who's going through this, and we hope that you're going to land on your feet. So I'm um, just going back to the Embracer group, I think the rebrand was essentially in motion since the acquisition because it had the name Square Enix in the brand. Um, hence the awkward timing that was already going to be announced anyway, considering the whole process that they went through and how polished it looks. Um, I think the closures alongside Eidos Montreal, who's reportedly reducing the scope of one of their in-development projects and canceling a project entirely is just part of the overall cost cutting that Aaron also mentioned to focus on their highest value opportunities. And additionally, like we just see companies batting down their hatches and focusing their strategic investments. And I think, yeah, this is just another company doing that.
2: All right, well, yeah, let's talk about uh, the next update. And I w- it was going to be specifically about the layoffs at you know Dapper Labs and Mythical Games. Um, and Mythical also saw um, some executive churn too. But these are just two examples out of many companies cutting back. So I figured it would actually be more interesting and helpful to cover cover that more holistically and like, why exactly is this happening? Um, and to start, you really just need like to remember how warped 2020 and 2021 were, right? Obviously, during lockdowns, people spent more time inside playing games. But on top of that, governments both made money abundant via printing, And they lowered the world's cost of capital um, through crazy low interest rates. And all of that combined led to a few things. One, um, strong growth and excess money led to asset prices going up a lot. And at that time, because of low interest rates on debt, as well as the the easier ability to raise capital through selling shares, um, companies were aggressively pursuing growth at that lower cost um, because it was easier to. Um, and, you know, times times were growing. Um, but, you know, as with all things, nothing in economics is a free lunch. And that excess is a big part of what led to inflation. And to fight inflation, governments need to raise rates, which breaks the economy to some extent. And that's what we've been um, experiencing in the past couple quarters. And when that happens, not only do equity values fall because bonds and treasury bills become more attractive relatively, but the cost of capital on companies uh, to grow increases because raising money through debt and equity becomes more expensive. At the same time, um, plus you know it just typically triggers a fall in economic demand, and when that happens on top of demand already falling because people are spending less time playing games and issues with IDFA, etc., um, it, it leads to the conclusion that the excess growth that we saw. Um, was actually not the new normal, but just a pull forward of demand that would have to return ultimately to its longer term trend line. And companies that aggressively invested for growth based on previous expectations um, now have to pull in the reins, re-forecast that growth lower and essentially re-budget for that lower growth, which leads to cost cutting and layoffs. And Mm -hmm. that's why we see that everywhere right now. So you know, yes, Dapper and Mythical are conducting layoffs, but so are the biggest and best companies in the world, right? Like Stripe and Shopify, and now Meta, and even Alphabet and Apple have put um, hiring freezes in place um, in, in certain parts of the businesses, at least. So, you know, ultimately, like it always does, this too shall pass. I think that's the the bottom line. It doesn't feel good, mm-hmm. and there's probably more to go as recession as a recession picks up, most likely, but. Um, and and probably even like more so in the web three space, which is just taking a bit longer to play out than many people would like. But ultimately, um, pulling in the reins is healthy for businesses, um, resetting and putting themselves in more conservative positions is healthy. And in a year or so, you know, when this is passed, we'll probably be talking about growth again. So anyways, Mm. yeah, it sucks to see the layoffs everywhere, but this isn't new It's part of the business cycle that happens, you know, every few years all the time, but yeah, still not yeah. fun to see.
0: About every decade or so. I mean, the the other thing that is an undercurrent here that we still don't know is people assume that gaming on the whole would be counter cyclical and it's proving out, especially in these categories around mobile gaming, mid-core as well as um, uh, mid-core and even mid-core plus games, it just isn't the case. User behavior and, and spending behavior seems to be incredibly cyclical. And, and the assumption that it wasn't going to be cyclical drove a lot of the downside protection of a lot of these places. At the same time, to Aaron's point, this is, well, we're not seeing, like there, and this, this may sound insensitive, but like there's a huge difference between a like 50% workforce reduction and a 20% work for, workforce reduction. It doesn't change that, how much it sucks for the individual people. But from a company standpoint, a 20% workforce reduction is like in line with, what companies are recommended to do irrespective of their core performance in a down cycle, just to make sure to anticipate what's happening. When we start seeing full-on closures or full-on 50-plus percent reductions, refocusing, layoffs, et cetera, that's when I think it gets particularly concerning to everyone involved, right? Like what, and the other compounding thing, especially with regards to both Dapper, Mythical, but even places like Take-Two with their recent layoffs of PlayDots is the impact of the M&A cycle. When you do a bunch of M&A, the anticipation is that there's going to be a round of layoffs sometime in the subsequent 6 to 12 to 18 months. And so in some ways, it's compounded by the fact there was so much M&A in 2021 that we're now seeing the, the cost savings, quote-unquote, that need to occur in order to justify, for example, a Zynga acquisition.
1: Hmm. Yeah, well, we're well definitely said. going to dive into that <laughs> in a little yes, bit. We will. I I know this isn't meant to be a discussion topic. I was curious, Aaron. Why do you think that this assumption uh, about the growth that was then going to keep on going, um, instead of going back to normal levels? Why do you think that how that assumption was made across the board?
2: I mean, I think it was just pretty extraordinary circumstances everywhere on the internet when everybody is at home and everybody is um, you know working from home playing from home like it just led to like a pretty extraordinary surge across um, e-commerce across gaming across you know enterprise software across a bunch of different places all at once. While mm-hmm. at the same time, the narrative was like, oh, this is just the way that the world is going to be <laughs> mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Like, I think there was some understanding that, yeah, you know, as people stay at home, people are just playing games more than they otherwise would. But at the same time, like, it was pulling forward the number of gamers and, you know, the number of people using Zoom and, you know, the, the number of people, you know, on e-commerce and all of that. And so I think a lot of teams companies around the world just invested. We're like, Hey, this is an opportunity. Like we like, if this turns out to be really a trend, like we have to invest for our growth to maintain competitive advantages and scale and all, you know, just all the things that come from that. Um, but it turned out that that was just the wrong bet to make. Um, but I can't really fault all of the businesses for taking their shot because, um, I mean, how are we, how is anyone really supposed to know what exactly mm-hmm. was going to happen? We were in a situation that wasn't even predictable in the first place. Um, yeah,
0: and, and by the way, wrong is, I think, uh, with all due respect, Aaron, like a little bit too strong of a phrase. Like, given the information that they had at that moment, it seemed like a weighted bet, and you just have to eat crow when you make... Like, it's it's. this is one of my big societal peeves. Like, you accrue value in two macroeconomic environments, pure monopolies, or pure uncertainty, right? And so, whenever we make a weighted bet as a company, you're betting that hey, if this works out, I will accrue more value in a perfect information situation. And so, in a lot of ways, uh, it's it's weird because I think societally, especially in the West, we give people credit for making those weighted bets and succeeding as though they foresaw the future, and we don't talk enough about the fact that it might have been a fine bet regardless of it not working out. And so, it's a really interesting spot because. It's, it's something that I think in our more recent last 10-year history, people just don't remember when these weighted bets failed, but mm-hmm. they fail all the time. And it's, I think, one of the more interesting parts about startups, because if it wasn't the case that these things failed, there would be no value in having a startup or no value in creating companies because the bigger players would have all the perfect information and then they'd win all the time. So in, in some ways, it's actually, as weird as to say, it's a little bit like the underbush burning in a forest bed and allows for new trees to grow. There's a lot of that happening here, too.
2: Yeah, and it wasn't all bad too, just from the standpoint of like even if a, a bunch of companies over over bet, like overplayed their hand a little bit, it still led to a lot of um like big fundraising that led to a bunch of companies having stronger financial positions to withstand whatever comes next would be more flexible. So um yeah, I mean I think what you said is well said. I still stand by like it, it still was wrong. Like even though like like it, it still didn't work out, but it's it's justifiable i think of like why mm-hmm. the decisions were made at the time
1: makes sense and on that note i think we can do a nice and nice segue into the take two earnings if you want to kick us off iran
2: okay yeah let me pull up my notes um yeah let's talk about the latest take two earnings so um I'll just get right to the point. The The market <laughs> did not like what it saw. And the stock price of Take-Two is now back to where it was five years ago, even lower than where Take-Two was pre-Zynga, pre-pandemic. So obviously, however people are perceiving Take-Two right now is as a challenging time for the business. And if you're just looking at the revenue numbers, you probably don't see why, because they're up a lot, driven by merging with zynga but what but what really sounded the alarm was that management lowered its revenue outlook for the year basically saying that like its performance as a whole is not going to live up to the expectations that um they had set and that's also i don't think the first (laughs) you know the first you know warning sign that 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 we've seen from you know this combined zynga take two business and um you know a couple pieces of reducing the revenue outlook have to do with currency exchange rates and shifting small things in the pipeline and those are fine. they happen, not something to be concerned about, but really, the other piece is mobile and this is not new from anything we 've really been talking about over the past few months um but this is the the second quarter in which take which Zynga has now been part of take two I think, and um even though the team seems to be making Progress from an organizational perspective, right? Like um, starting to oversee the full take-to-mobile portfolio, starting to pinpoint opportunities for expansion or streamlining, etc. Et um, you know, the results have still been pretty, pretty tough, and they don't break mobile out, so we can't see exactly what's going on, but mobile is now the largest part of Take-Two's business. And it looks like um, IAP sales are down for the year. And that combination um, in and of itself is not a a great place to be. And so it's just becoming obvious that not only did Take-Two overpay for Zynga in stock, um, but it's bringing a headache that will probably take A year maybe longer to like to work through and get to the other side on and to to add a bit more pain on top of that gta 5 sales also look to be um slowing down and obviously it's crazy how long gta 5 sales have been so high Mm -hmm. like that's really like the the better part of the story and the more interesting part and i and they and take two does a great job of managing gta online and retaining um players there but you know that has been their most lucrative franchise and so if it actually is slowing down quarter after quarter at the same time as mobile that's a tough place to be and so i get why the stock is beaten down um not everything is bad i'll I'll say that nba 2k is doing well i think its units sold from last year um are roughly the same um but it's selling price and digital sales are higher on this year's version. And the company, you know, if if you've been studying this company for a few years, you'll see that they just steadily grow out the pipeline and they have a good growth engine in their console PC uh, pipeline, which of course right now is topped with GTA 6, which had all of the, you know, that the hack of the inside information from there, kind of made noise last month. But really, bottom line is that that's still is probably going to be you know, an enormous launch, as it always is with Rockstar. So if I'm looking long term, I still have a lot of faith in this company. They have a great profitable growth engine on the console PC side, especially of GTA 6 as well. And eventually, mobile will return to growth. So I think this is a dark cloud that we can ultimately see through. But it's just a bummer, of how much value was destroyed by overpaying for Zynga and how long it'll take to work through um, some of the pain there. And a lot of that was self-inflicted through that deal. Um, so that's my take, at least. But I'm curious maybe to start if you both agree with me on the Zynga point. Uh, did it destroy as much value as maybe I'm making it seem? Like, Is it going to be as big of a of a headwind over the next year as I think? Or is it better than i'm letting on
0: there are three parts of the take two analysis that are are really interesting aaron i I think the first one is 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 actually stuff that i I doubt people on this call really care about but a lot of like balance sheet math which is pretty interesting yeah I, i think what's important to know is hey you know take two prior to the zynga acquisition did have some really interesting mobile games on their portfolio right they had dragon city they had two dots they had, I think they have like the WWE game, right? There's some interesting stuff inside of the ecosystem. And so if the question is, hey, on a 12-month forward-looking basis, do we think that this is having an impact on the overall stock price? I mean, I think the answer is almost unequivocally yes, right? Like we're seeing a, we're, they're mis- they missed, I think, their revenue projections for the full year by about a couple hundred million, two, $300 million, right? Like th- that seems like, in line with the boost that you would have expected from changes to the to the network and whatnot. There's also belief in Q1, whether it was correct or incorrect, I'm, I'm still not quite sure, as to whether or not gaming was somehow insulated from the changes to the SK ad network. Right, that In fact, that because gamers were more willing to share user data with each other, that that would be a massive boon to the data application of mobile gaming. As it turns out, it seems more likely that Effectively, the reduction of, or the increase of CAC relative to LTV in the mid-core game genre has caused a lot of these systems to just not be profitable, right? They're very much a volume-based game development, and we haven't seen that. So really, I would imagine the, the entire scope in which Zynga will be uh, you know, evaluated for is less what we see today in the next year or two, and more so, hey do the Istanbul studios that Zynga owned, like Peak Games, are they making some really cool games that do really well in this new era? We, I, you mentioned this actually at the Bitcraft Summit, Aaron. I thought that was a really good point, saying that like, hey, like game developers do adjust. They do change the types of games they make relative to the incentives they have. And it's probably a little bit too soon to, to see what the outlook is. The, the one thing I would also point out, just in take two, that, that was super cool, was, did you see that their ad revenues Seven <laughs> X, like I thought, that was yeah. really random. They they were year over year. They went from like twenty five million to one hundred seventy five million. I didn't even know ad revenue was that large of a business, and frankly, it yeah. wasn't last year.
1: My, <laughs> my like, understanding is from Rolex performance with their more hyper casual, um, Admon games.
0: Yeah, that's. I think that's super interesting, and and, and may be a part of the business that. You know, in addition to the fact that their overall game revenues were up, like I think it's interesting to see. I'd also love to see some analysis on, and, and I'm sure you might see this on Novik Pro, on the deltas, right? The deltas of like, hey, like try to spin back down, work backwards, what Zynga looked like versus Take-Two. We might find out some really interesting stuff and, and I'm certainly going to look out for that for sure.
1: Yeah, the original goal of acquiring Zynga was to increase their mobile net bookings. But I also think it was to bring an advantage in terms of cash flow and having a production pipeline where they can prototype faster, they can release more games. And that brings them more predictability because the lead time to develop AAA console titles, it's, I don't know, eight years, around eight years, six, eight years. It did pay uh, a premium for Zynga. I think it was around twelve point seven. Billion, which was around $5 billion more than Microsoft's acquisition of Bethesda, I think. Like, that's how much of a premium they paid to now be facing the headwinds in the mobile um, economic market. I think one concern I have about Take-Two's strategy in terms of how to leverage Zynga's expertise is that they seem to be pushing in a direction of exploring mobile games for their key IPs. And it sounds like they're going to pursue a strategy of polished, Almost triple A games on mobile that we're starting to see, but is that Zynga's strength? And there was a in the earnings call, there was an analyst who showed some concerns about the polish levels of Take Two. So, like with a machine like Zynga, where they can prototype, they can release a lot of games. I feel like that's their strength that you should be leaning into and not try to utilize them to create these triple A that triple A titles that also have a long lead time. That's my main concern with how they're going to work in the next few years with Zingo.
2: Yeah, I think they'll do it all. They'll at least, you know, study it all. I think um I doubt they're sprinting towards that, but now that they they have, you know, a leadership team of mobile experts, you know, Frank Jabot above all, who, who did a good job leading Zynga's business. And I I hope he he sticks around. If he doesn't stick around, that would be another 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 red flag. But I think it's you know, they're going to continue leaning into what Zynga does best, first and foremost, but if they accelerate their exploration kind of around the edges of, um, like, what would it look like to take Bioshock <laughs> to mobile? And maybe not even Zynga makes it, but it's, you know, some type of co-development deal with, you know, Tencent or whatever. There there still could be some interesting um, pieces to unlock there. I just wonder how long it takes to to work through... Um, kind of the doldrums of what the mobile market is right now. Like, th- I think that's the, the biggest question mark. Like, is it going to take, you know, six months, a year, two years? Um, like, like what's the what's the waiting period? And I don't think anyone really knows. And the reason why no one knows is because in the, in the same way that, uh, you know, these platforms were able to just make big changes, you know, largely out of nowhere. They can do that again. And just like, we don't know in a year. Like, like, what will the rules be on Apple? Like, what will the SK ad network be? Like, what like, what will this ecosystem ultimately become? Will developers find new ways to adapt? It's just so hard to, like, look forward um, well enough. I do think, like, it is pretty obvious that there will come a point where, like, obviously the decline will stop at some point and there will be, like, a reset and we'll we'll go from there. But um, I think that's a big question to ask. But, but yeah, I mean, Seb, you also mentioned just, like, balance sheet stuff. I think it is worth saying, that um, before the acquisition of Zynga happened, you had three billion dollars in cash and no debt. And since mm-hmm. then, their cash has been cut in half, and now they have over three billion in debt. and And so the balance sheet basically flipped. And you know, just from like a shareholder creation standpoint, you know, if you feel good about your future business, even though you have headwinds, now is probably the time to be taking actions like repurchasing stock and doing things like that. And they I guess they could some, but really they're sort of handicapped by how much weaker their balance sheet is because of this deal now. So that doesn't really have anything to do with games. That's just more like financial engineering and corporate management. But still, still another another headwind that they, they can't really capitalize on.
0: It's fun because if you believe... And, and this is probably way too financially nerdy for most people on this. Uh, but if, like if you believe that inflation is increasing massively, right? And that in fact you're better off as a company position to be doing expansion as opposed to under like activist pressure from folks trying to get stock repurchased or dividending out. Like you actually sort of want debt on your balance sheet because debt servicing may actually be lower of an interest rate than like corporate debt in particular might be lower of an interest rate than inflation at any moment in time. And so you're actually in fact printing overall company value. Now, granted, like, again, none of this is investment advice, but, like, th- that is, I think, one of the more interesting things. I also, Aaron, I thought you pointed out a really great point, which is uh, I I oscillate and over my career on the value of key men or women, but the key man provision, right, like, in particular. And it seems to be really valuable, right? <laughs> there is value in acquiring people who, like, really, really good executives. I We just saw... You Know, I'm sure we saw this on the news. This is Wednesday, I think came out yesterday that Steve satan you know, is leaving FTX's as their head of games to become the head of games, um, head of web three games for Scopely. That's a huge key man move, right? Like, that's a huge key man move that obviously wasn't precipitated by the Binance stuff because those things take weeks to negotiate, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like he just like I, I thought it was yeah. really funny that people were like, Oh wow, this guy, like figured it out on Monday and got a, like an SVP job somewhere else in 24 hours. Like it doesn't move that quickly usually, but that I think is super interesting. And I think that's part of a lot of this analysis is on a more micro level, who are the senior producers? Who are the VP of products? Who are these interesting um, men and women around the world who have demonstrated the ability to drive teams and make really cool stuff in bear markets before? And I think that's going to be a really interesting to watch and something, I got to be honest with you, I, I'm probably going to go off this podcast and do more research into it because I think it's really cool.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I Go ahead, Maria. You're going to say something?
1: I was going to say, I think we'll dive into that, actually, when we look at EA's earnings.
2: Shall we segue into that? Or does anyone have any final thoughts on TikTok? Yeah,
1: I had a final thought about, you mentioned the the stock value. And my understanding is that part of the nervousness of the market is due to reducing the net guidance for the next quarter, which is meant to be the festive season. And to me, this just demonstrates uh, how Take Two is struggling with their pipeline of new games on console and PC, because if we look at their hard their hits, their key IPs, they're still like this the, the next games are still two, three years away. And they're already declining in terms of PC and console revenue. Do you have any thoughts on that, Erin?
2: Well, when I was uh, an investment analyst, you know, trying to value companies like Take Two, it's hard because of how lumpy the businesses are, and so you sort of like you have to kind of take a different perspective and how you kind of like bunch years together into like trying to get like a more like standard, non-cyclical view of the business due to like launch cycles and. I th- I think when you look at the underlying trend of like the pipeline of this business, it's moving in a good direction. It's always been lumpy, but it's they've always done a good job of like reinvesting to build it out while making like their core IPs um, more lucrative along the way. I mean, with GTA being the best example, but even something like Borderlands, you know, it's always releases the next one releases every few years. But basically, every time they have released the next version. Um, not only has it done better, but they've been able to like really succeed with like the digital expansions and the recurring Mm -hmm. revenues that come from it. And as I look at, you know, the underlying growth engine of their console PC business, the long-term trend line, I think it's still ultimately about the same, Uh, you know, caveat, you know, mega asterisk on whether, you know, GTA (laughs) six, you know, performs at a similar level of GTA five, um, which, you know, that's that's a whole other discussion topic onto itself that I'm sure we'll have one day. Um, but that's just more how I view the business. I don't know if I even really fully answered your question, Maria. I kind of got lost in my own head there. <laughs> but but um, but yeah, as I guess just like that sort of is the trend line. So as I think about the like a stock or a value, it's like it's less about like, is the next year going to have a lack of releases? And it's more about is that trend line that long-term like growth engine can it still snowball over the next decade i guess
1: no i think it's it's a, a good learning to take away i'm used to analyzing mobile uh game dev performance where the pipeline isn't lumpy like you're saying there's faster capacity so it's very interesting to understand how you analyze more of the long term like companies that have that long lead way into developing new titles
0: yeah, it's it's really fun. There's a fun story uh, for people to, who are interested in, to look up, which is uh, Blizzard had historically a horrible time with timing their lumpy release schedule, right? And I think the the biggest example of this was uh, Diablo One. I think it was released like January 5th. <laughs> like it was like they were trying to get it out on time for the holiday season and they just missed. <laughs> and it was, I mean, obviously an amazing game, but can you imagine if they were a publicly traded company then and they're just like yeah, like we just. We just straight up missed on our one of our biggest IP game launches by a month. I always find that to be so cool because we uh, it is one of the like harder things when you're a public traded company that you're like beholden to these things. Whereas Diablo, for example, great game, uh, people give them so much crap now for launching January fifth, because like, like that's even just like you clearly missed the holiday schedule. It's not even like there's no ifs and buts about it. It's like not even in the middle of summer. Shall I dig into EA, uh,
2: Maria? Yeah.
1: Yeah, let's do it.
2: All right. So in comparison to Take-Two, EA had a relatively tame quarter. Um, and I'll just cover general like numbers. I mean, net bookings for the quarter, they slightly dipped over the last year, mainly because of the timing of Formula One. Again, lumpiness affects everyone. Um, but if we look at the results over the past 12 months, net bookings are up slightly, mainly driven by live services. And then, you know, cash flows are a little bit down, but still for this quarter, but also when looking bigger picture are still very strong. And unlike Take-Two, which we just talked about, they, uh, you know, Take-Two, which has less financial flexibility, EA, which which has had more excess cash, has been able to spend it on things like dividends and share repurchases. So, EA is just a very strong business right now. Uh, That's really the bottom line. But if we look at more of the details, EA Sports is the clear standout right now. FIFA 23 is selling 10% more units than last year. And it's a World Cup year, which should bode very well for how this year's version performs. Madden is doing really well, too. And, of course, FIFA is about to shift to EA Sports FC. Um, In the next year or so, I think, which Mm -hmm. uh, loses the FIFA branding, but also will be higher margin for EA because they don't have to pay those licensing fees. And we'll learn more about the details there. But this is just such an incredible franchise that, you know, things will be fine. Um, EA also announced three upcoming Marvel games, which is another big IP win uh, for them, probably somewhat inspired by the success they had with Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order a couple of years ago. Um, and we heard other tidbits about Sims 5, such as the renewed emphasis on UGC, which should also be successful for them and take that franchise likely to new heights. And Overwolf is the company behind that, and that's you know doubly exciting for them and a huge win for that company. Um, so on the console PC front, things are just solid. It's just solid. And what's interesting to me is that... EA Mobile essentially gets no mention anywhere right now, and clearly mobile probably isn't the brightest spot to highlight for all of the reasons we've already discussed, and even great games like Apex Legends Mobile probably have not performed as well as the team would have hoped, but I always find it really interesting that the EA's CEO, Andrew Wilson, he never talks about mobile. And whenever questions about mobile pop up, he always hands them over to um, the COO, uh, Lara Miele. I hope I didn't butcher that name. Um, And I don't know much of the inner workings of EA Mobile, but from what we've studied, such as the mega underperformance of the Glue acquisition and the seemingly constant shifting around of structure and talent in EA Mobile, it seems like, you know, still after many years, they have yet to find their stride. So <laughs> I'm curious what you all think. And maybe since we talked about mobile with Take-Two, we can also start by touching on um, that with EA. I'm just really curious what your impressions of EA mobile are these days. And are they right to not really talk about it? Like, Does it even really matter for, for EA right now?
1: I read the whole earnings call because I I saw that you had mentioned that there was no mention of mobile games, and you're exactly right. I'm sure you know to be at that kind of level and position in the game industry and leading such a a solid uh, company like EA, you are competent. So I'm not calling their competency into question. I think for me, not seeing key leadership addressing mobile in the earnings call, I think to me, it just raises questions about their investment. Like, well, how do they see mobile playing a role in the future of EA? Because they talk a lot about FIFA and PC and console, but there isn't that mention of the strategic value of mobile games. And even when there was a question about mobile games, um, the answer is that they were confident in their position to have an impact beyond some of the challenges that are experiencing in a post-ATT world. But if you actually go and look at the results of their mobile portfolio, they're not good. They are struggling, um, similar to the struggles that we're talking about with Take-Two mobile portfolio. Um, And additionally, when speaking about Apex Legends, it seems like they were alluring that the results of Apex Mobile were good. But if I I went to look at the data and it's in decline, both downloads and revenue is struggling to find its market share. So I, I think overall, I just feel there's this disconnect between the the team that is leading the future of EA with the how they evaluate the performance of the portfolio and how it's going to play into their strategy.
0: I have fewer opinions about EA in general, uh, in part because they're so sports-driven and they're clearly doing a lot of IP development. It, it does seem a bit two-sided, right? On one hand people are saying, hey, like, everyone else who's acquired mobile studios and mobile publishers have made huge mistakes. On the flip side, then people come back and say, oh, but it doesn't talk about mobile enough, right? And it's like, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. It's like a very strange and interesting spot because they've, to everyone's point, has taken a far more structured approach in the last year as a result of probably making mistakes or uh, missteps in previous years prior.
2: Yeah, it's just interesting to me how most of these... Big publishers have not done a great job of building out their mobile businesses, and you know part of that is understandable. It's just not what they're they do it's not what their what their core teams have been good at, but even the acquisitions like we talked about take two and Zynga and how that has not how that's been value destructive but even e a uh we we did this research in Novic Pro recently too. they've made like seven or eight mobile acquisitions. the first one was like jamdat in 2005 which you know that didn't work and that set off you know uh you know a trend of like all up until glue which was a two billion dollar deal a couple of years ago and that also really didn't work and so it seems to me like the ceo just like the top of leadership like it's not really a mobile guy and probably has seen that everything they've done hasn't really worked um both internally and externally, and Probably, like as a result, has been more critical of reinvesting appropriately and really providing the support that mobile teams feel like they need. Whether it's, you know, in hiring or in funding or in, you know, like I know it took them a while to like really even make EA Mobile its own division um, in terms of like org structure, and it seems like it just because it hasn't been there priority at the highest level and like the top leadership has not been you know as excited or effective at mobile that it's that has trickled all the way down and has just been a source of a headache. Um maybe not uh you know like the only reason. I'm sure they've had other reasons too and some of it's macro as well. But yeah, it seems like a a top-down and bottom-up problem happening at the same time. And what's and I guess how I see like the business as a whole is like clearly even when they don't talk about mobile, this is a business that still generates you know over a billion dollars in cash flow every year, and still has mm-hmm. like killer IP, growing franchises, ability to win over new licensing deals with incredible brands. So they're fine. Um, they can do totally fine and well without killing it in mobile. But man, it would be nice if they could figure out how to to unlock you know, more growth potential there because that would just be icing on the cake and like really drive uh, nice outperformance, I think. Yeah,
1: if we, if we compare um, toe-to-toe Take-Two's approach to mobile with EA's approach to mobile, like we were talking about the key leadership in driving this. If we look at Take-Two, they acquired essentially Zing as leadership. They're trusting them, they're collaborating and they're allowing them to drive that mobile strategy. If we look at EA, for example, Glue's leadership left after the acquisition happened. I don't know if EA has strong mobile leadership to tie all of the acquisition, acquisitions together and understand the portfolio. Even when they talk about mobile, t- they talk about um, EA's IPs. But, you know, what about Golf Clash? What about Disney Sorcerer's Arena? They have such a strong portfolio of games in mobile that have performed well. Yes, they are separate. Um, yes, they're not the EA IPs. But if someone were to cherish them and help all of the companies come together, I think they had they have a lot of growth opportunities in mobile. But unless that happens and everyone's almost just I don't know, not under the same leadership, growing in the same direction, sharing technology and best practices, I think they're going to struggle strategically to take advantage of their acquisitions.
2: Gotcha. Well, Seb, I want to hear about your topic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, sure. I,
0: the topic is of of Somewhat interest, but it's it's far more in the weeds, which seems to be the theme of, of this podcast, is just getting into the weeds of things. But we're starting to see a small return to increasing deployments in venture capital right now, especially in the gaming sector in particular. Um, market activity around the venture space seems to be increasing. To be fair and completely honest, this is fairly anecdotal, right? Like a lot of these deals, because they're private equities, done with in private. <laughs> you just won't hear about it on some some amount of lag. Uh, but you know, just from my seat at BitCraft, but also just looking around the space, there seems to be a lot more movement in people raising capital both in Q3, Q4 of this year, as well as trying to get themselves situated to raise capital in Q1 next year. There, There's a variety of interesting theories and hypotheses as to why this is the case. One is the dry powder idea, which is you know, people like spending and deploying money. Like it makes them feel as though they're finding good bets. Um, that's a fun one where it's like, hey, there's a lot of dry powder from just the sheer amount of venture capital that was raised by the funds over the last couple of years 18, 24 months. So they have to deploy and they're pressured to deploy. Some people have deployment cycles that are like only two years or three years and they're going that way. The most generous view of it is that, hey, when you find a good team, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because really, Uh, the best type of venture portfolio construction is often the one that is looking for bets that will become billion-dollar companies in gaming. And so it really doesn't matter if you find that company at two on 10 or two on 20, depending on the year. If they're a good company and a good group of founders, hell yeah, you should invest in them. Um, uh, A point of order on that is that if you look at a female founder raising um, throughput over the year to year, 2022, despite being a bad technically venture cycle, has been the highest number of capital deployed to women, um, I think, ever, it seems to be the case. And so that's pretty cool on that side. The third one, which I think is interesting and sort of worth the discussion, is if this is a a form of DCA, uh, if this is a form of just trying to balance one's portfolio by investing in lower and lower pricing all the way down and, and not trying to time the market, but rather... Investing into different cohorts of game companies. I, I think all three of those things are particularly interesting. And uh, the answer is we don't know. But certainly, if you're raising money right now, or if you're trying to raise money in April, it was insanely hard. And if you're trying to raise money in November, it's less hard than it was in April.
2: Gotcha. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and maybe you touched on this a little bit, but how how have like the prices of deals fluctuated over this time like as deals deal volume went down and it is back up again has price followed or is it or is prices still still down a bit
0: yeah actually you know it's the 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 most rational argument is that because prices have dropped sufficiently um, demand for these deals has gone up and so that's why you're seeing funding but yeah no uh it's uh it sounds tremendously depending on segment year over year uh in in crypto, Web three gaming, for example, I think it's down like maybe seventy five percent. In some of this, like in terms of series uh, seed, series A valuations, in wow. your typical uh, traditional gaming, mid core gaming, that's also down. Um, sometimes in the ballpark of like fifty percent. Uh, I think it really depends. One thing that's probably worth mentioning is that people who are amazing founders, or people who have really strong track records, or people who have like really strong metrics, they're less affected. By the like price change, although they are still also affected, just as a function of like there are fewer people uh, who are pricing them. At the same time, the the hot deals will still be hot and, and still have upward price pressure as a result.
1: At deployment wise, are you seeing also, Are you seeing a recovery in Web three gaming? Is Web three gaming lagging?
0: It's. I mean, the thing is, is that like the framing of recovery is strange given there's only like one data point for a web3 gaming or like two data points in the last 4 years for web3 gaming there was like a tranche of games that were deployed around the like axie infinity times and then the second tranche was last year or this year right and so relative to the peaks certainly down but it's not as frozen as it was 6 months ago i think that's really interesting now granted i think the other thing that's happened and i think this is advice i give to uh, all founders is there's a lot more intentionality in terms of fundraising. We're seeing fewer people uh, go into market and raise around in six days, right? Like it's far more, hey, building up the relationship, sending out what your KPIs are, letting people know, hey, I'm making so-and-so game. I think that I'm going to be able to turn something around in six months or 12 months or 18 months and go from there. What's also really cool, and I think this is going to be really fun to watch, is that as a result, we're going to see a lot of both failure as well as success, probably in the next 12 months, as companies typically in the seed round gear their deployment to be about an 18-month leeway in order to get their product to a point where they feel comfortable raising more money. And so I'd imagine, especially for those people who didn't raise above their means or were too valuation sensitive or didn't sell enough to the company or a variety of other reasons, we're going to start seeing people be like, hey, that's awesome that you had this great idea for making keychains. I hope that's not any of our companies. I mean, I'm sure it's an interesting <laughs> idea. But like, let's say you're making like a keychain simulator game uh, as your core game. Well, if you're a strong enough team and you have a really core audience that you're going after and there's like a chance for, to have a venture potential, you were probably able to raise a seed round last year. Like no questions asked. Now it's going, now basically it's time to figure out, hey, was there an audience? Are you capable of shipping products? Is there some interesting KPIs you're hitting? Mm -hmm. What's your D1, D7, D30 retention numbers look like? What is your do you have a sense of CAC versus LTV? Are you going after specific genres? What's your acquisition play? So I think that's gonna be really fun to watch, especially as we have seen we you know we've seen a lot of announcements around people who have seen traction. We haven't seen as many announcements around people who haven't. So we'll see Mm -hmm. what happens.
2: Last question from me. I'm curious you know, as the uh, funding is coming back, are you seeing a difference in the type of companies that are getting that funding? Like if mobile is, with IDFA is struggling, is it less of that? Or with Web3 struggling, is it less of that? Like, I'm just curious what you're seeing less and more of come through.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're still seeing a lot of everything, I think is the honest answer. Uh, it, the, the best way to describe, I would say, portfolio, like there's a difference between how funds should do portfolio construction and how startups should think. Like you, if you are a founder, You should know that you failed. If you're a great founder, you fail 90% of the time. If you're an okay founder, you fail like 95% of the time. If you're a horrible founder, you fail 100% of the time, right? And so figuring out where your edge is is really interesting. It's been really cool because it's not just folks from uh, your Riot and blizzards who have more experience in the PC and console space are starting companies in the last year. We've seen a lot of people also leave places like Scopely, places like Tilting Point, places with uh, like your your um, your embracer groups, like places that have like experience in other genres of gaming, and they're crushing it in their direction. And so, what I'd imagine to see is a lot more aggregation of IP. I mean, obviously, like uh, Second Dinner is probably the best example of mobile first development that's done particularly well in the last like six months, right? Um, along with Survivor IO. So, we're interested. The the thing that I would say that is like the largest driver of venture is actually vintage. It's like sort of the like worst kept secret in venture, which is that uh, what year you start your fund is by far the biggest influence on whether or not you're successful oh, yeah. with the fund or not. Yeah. <laughs> and so what's really fun about that is as we close the 2022 vintage and start the 2023 vintage, you're gonna see a lot of similarities in part because uh, there's no such thing as a unique idea. Like that's something that I think I've talked about here before where we're the outcome of all of our inputs. And mm-hmm. so if you're getting the same inputs with Super interesting stuff on the crypto side, your ideation, even if you're a mobile first or console first gamer, is going to be more crypto generative. And you're going to see a lot of interesting people creating interesting stuff there. Once that influence changes, we're going to see different vintages for 2023 where my expectation, and I don't have evidence about this, but certainly want to hear people come out and tell me about it. I expect to see far more generative AI. If you're listening to this and working on a generative AI gaming startup, please let me know. Mm -hmm. I'd imagine with the amount of press we've gotten, we're going to see some really cool companies doing some really interesting stuff in that space. I also imagine we're going to see a lot more on uh, brand-based pushes, right? People who are thinking about user acquisition not on a CAC versus LTV perspective, but on some community generation or some other type of uh, like this neat trick that gets you over the edge, right? Uh, we don't give enough credit, I think, for looking back to people, for example, at Pocket Gems with their episodes, where they like figured out this like one neat trick in their user acquisition algorithm that allowed them to create this like massive hit. It's, it's a really fun time to be in gaming because as things fail or as things no longer work, there are almost certainly people at companies right now, maybe even ones who've been laid off for like, wait, there's been this idea I've had that I think gives me this like, unfair advantage that allows me to compete. And so I'm super excited for what the 2023 vintage looks like because 2022 was very heavily crypto, uh, more so than I think any <laughs> other EOI I've seen.
1: Well, I'm always mind blown having you on the show. Um, yeah, Aaron, so your ability to see the outlook of the market and your financial analysis, strategic analysis, always amazing to learn from you. So yeah, thanks for joining today. And if you want to keep up with all of these insights, you can subscribe to the free NaviC Digest newsletter. You can join, it, join the Discord, NaviC Discord, and can find us there to continue the conversation. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you again next week. Bye, everyone.